the winter of 1811, Andrew Jackson was moving a coffle along the Natchez Trace, an ancient Indian road that ran alongside the Mississippi, connecting Nashville to Natchez, when he was stopped by Silas Dismore, a federal agent. The trace passed through Chickasaw and Choctaw lands. Nominally protected by federal treaty and government Indian agents like Dismore were charged with checking passports with travelers. They did so for a number of reasons. To monitor white settlers and traders entering indigenous lands. To keep a lookout for escaping slaves who hoped to slip into Indian country. And to enforce the growing number of federal laws attempting to regulate slavery. Three years earlier, Congress had banned the transatlantic slave trade. So the checkpoint was intended to ensure that the only chattel being moved along the road were bona fide slaves, either imported prior to 1808 or American-born. Yes, sir, Jackson answered Dismore when the agent asked for his papers. I always carry mine with me. He meant the U.S. Constitution, which was, quote, sufficient passport to take me wherever my business leads me including on a road that, quote, was by law free for every American citizen. Another version of the story has the general showing his pistols and saying, quote, these are General Jackson's passports. Whatever exactly transpired, Jackson made it clear that he was, quote, unwilling to submit the American name to such an insult as to request permission to travel on the public highway. Jackson was waved through, but he launched a campaign to remove Dinsmore from office. In a series of letters to government officials, the future president warned that the agent, who faced similar complaints from other slavers, that he had hindered their free movement, would face vigilante justice. Jackson threatened to burn Silas Dinsmore in the flames of his agency house and to cut the agent off at his roots. The citizens say, Jackson warned, they will remove the nuisance if government does not. The people were, quote, ready to burst forth in vengeance. My God, is it come to this? Jackson asked. Are we free men or are we slaves? Is this real or is it a dream? Welcome back to Ending the Myth, a podcast where we are working our way through Greg Grandin's 2019 book, The End of the Myth, as a survey of American history, as well as a way to plumb the depths of spiritual, cultural, and intellectual abyss that is what makes America a truly exceptional country. I'm Brian. And I'm Munya. And Munya, sometimes there's a man. Sometimes there's a man. <laughs> <laughs> indeed 
Today, we're talking about one of the most consequential and quintessential personifications of uh, the awful, rotten American psychoses, the original sovereign citizen, the uh, emo frontiersman (laughs) with a heart of gold. Yeah. (laughs) The man on the $20 bill, our seventh president. Bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you just shoot me in the head? Because you know I'd be better off dead. It was really no place in America for celebrity of the first rank. Ladies and gentlemen, Governor Andrew Jackson! Yeah! That's right, motherfuckers! Jackson's back! A one, two, three, John Madden, try to be an American Idol, Jefferson, try to be a rock star, Madison, try to make a presidency Bible, James Monroe was a douchebag. The story always ends the same, it's hard to handle all that fame, you don't really have it in yeah. oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Yo, imagine learning about Andrew Jackson through that musical. <laughs> like, <laughs> Unfortunately for you, listener, both me and Moodya learned about the musical, the rock emo musical, Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson this morning. (laughs) Yeah, we do like very deep research. We don't just like read (laughs) historical and primary texts. We also have to suffer through uh, forgotten Broadway musical, Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. (laughs) I actually consider that musical a primary text. Yeah. But I do love that that story, which is from Greg Grandin's book, obviously, uh, that you read at the beginning of the show. I I reading that in the book, which I was like, he literally was the first sovereign citizen. Like he literally, the, yeah, he's the YouTube guy who's like, oh look, <laughs> the next time you're pulled over by cops, like don't even roll down your window. <laughs> so the DA is the one that stated on page nineteen that speeding in and of itself is not a crime. Sir, I need it to is not illegal. Per- just just put a <laughs> yeah. note that yeah. says. <laughs> They, they are not following admiralty law, so you have no <laughs> compunction to obey them. And yeah. Like... No, this, this this MF has the GoPro and is like, am I being detained after like... like... <laughs> yeah, he's like, am I being detained, guy? <laughs> oh, my God. I always thought that was funny. I was always like, it must be nice to not fear death in that way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, a little, little people know that uh, whatever you think the law is, that is a spell that will make the police go away. Yeah, if you just right. wave it at them. <laughs> they definitely aren't psychotic freaks with guns who really don't give a shit what you think about mm. anything. That's for sure. Disregard for any laws or <laughs> <Yeah>. rules. Or <laughs> <laughs> You're completely unbound by like any, yeah, any laws, regulations, whatever, right? <laughs> and only demand one thing, which is like total obedience to them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, holy shit. So, Andrew, <laughs> I mean, what are the chances that any of those stories are true uh, as far as what he said to the guy? But at the same time, very funny. <laughs> yeah, extremely funny. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they have enough uh, support to be put in the book. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, it's obviously what his, you know, fan base thought of him, which is, you mm. know, is, is important, important and telling. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, right. Holy shit. Well, but yeah, uh, I mean, let's get into it. Why don't you, why don't you give us a little bit of uh, what, what's who is Andrew Jackson? Yeah, let's get into it. So Andrew Jackson was born on March 15th, 1767 
in the Waxhaws region of the Carolinas. His father, also named Andrew Jackson, and mother, Elizabeth Hutchinson, were Scottish-Irish colonists. His parents emigrated from Ulster, Ireland <laughs> two years earlier. Okay, okay, we'll talk. <laughs> I apologize. I feel like this is going to be a lot of this during our discussion of this man, <laughs> because he's nothing if not a just uh, stock character. He, he is a collection of tropes, essentially. Um, for those who are not familiar with uh, Irish history, as a white man who lives in America, I am actually officially a PhD in Irish history. Uh, mm-hmm. th- these are the rules. Uh, but the Ulster thing is funny, and it's funny for a reason. So for those who aren't familiar, uh, Ireland was Britain's first colony. And when the British essentially invaded Ireland in the early 17th century, the northeastern province of the island which is referred to as ulster was sort of the british home base right and they imported all these british you know nobles the the right kind of guys you know (laughs) into ulster in order to help hold down the sort of fort if you will right from that point on ulster became sort of colloquially known as fortress ulster uh, ah, very cool. Yeah, a place uh, where British loyalists uh, just engaged in like horrifying terror campaigns <laughs> against their <laughs> Irish subjects. And it's partially funny uh, because the modern version of this, because this mania in Ireland still exists, is uh, the the Ulster Defense Association, also known as the Ulster Freedom Fighters, also known by like 50 other aliases. One, continue to operate to this day, killed hundreds of people in the last 40 plus years, uh, almost all civilians. But they're also great muralists in Northern Ireland. And Munia, I'm, I got two murals I want you to look at, but I just think... All right. This is the region that produced Andrew Jackson's family. God, what? (laughs) So the first is it's in Belfast and it's a really famous UDA mural that is it's a image of a man in camo with a ski mask on pointing his, you know, assault rifle directly at you, the viewer. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the barrel of the gun is like <laughs> directly to your head. <laughs> yeah, and he's just aiming it at you. And under With like it, a ski mask on. And under it, it says UFF member or Ulster Freedom Fighter member, <laughs> right? So basically saying, <laughs> yeah, this is us shooting you. Yeah. <laughs> in, in case you were not clear who shot up your mom's house. <laughs> Let's be absolutely clear. But the other maybe more telling for our you know, for our story that we're trying to tell is another famous one in Belfast, uh, which is called the Sons of Ulster Mural. And the background of this mural is a giant Confederate flag waving in the wind with some, let's just say, grade school level depictions of various (laughs) Confederate generals, including Robert E. Lee. Looks like shit. (laughs) Looks like shit. And a Ben Garrison amount of text on it. (laughs) And there's a giant ribbon that says the sons of Ulster who led the Confederate army during the war of Northern aggression. (laughs) 
And to be clear, this is the Ulster Defense Association basically making a memorial to the American Confederacy, uh, presumably painted in like the 1970s. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like this paint looks fresh. You know, like this is like a digital photo. (laughs) That's like all color digital photo. And the yeah, the mural looks very fresh. So, (laughs) yeah. And, you know the the uda was like so fond of confederate flags that they've actually had to like ban them at uh soccer games in ireland because it's you know like ulster loyalists will like fly them in mass and it creates problems um they're also by the way quite fa- uh, fond of the rhodesian flag uh hmm. interesting hmm. right very and, interesting and the south african apartheid flag um I will point that, you know, uh, in the interest of fairness, I shouldn't criticize uh, one side of this conflict without criticizing the other. Uh, The IRA does have many murals celebrating figures such as Frederick Douglass, Martin Mm -hmm. Luther King, and the uh, Palestinian struggle against Israeli occupation. So who's to tell who's the good guys and the bad guys Mm, in the struggle? Both to me are are the same. So (laughs) (laughs) I can't tell. (laughs) Yeah, they both represent a disruption of the status quo. Yeah, which is is the worst type of crime. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) But it's just so funny that his family's from Ulster. Uh, Andrew Jackson, (laughs) we're already off to a good start. In February 1767, just three weeks before Jackson was born, Jackson's father died in a logging accident while clearing land at a young age of 29. Jackson, his mother, and his brothers lived with Jackson's aunt and uncle in the Waxhaws region of South Carolina and receiving schooling from two nearby priests. It was known as a young kid that Jackson had thin skin and got easily offended. Hard to believe. He was considered a bully, where he'd both push around and take a group of younger and weaker boys under his wing. He was sort of a Ben Shapiro turned Tom Sawyer figure. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. he's like, um, okay, let's just say, hypothetically, Pap kidnaps my best friend and books it out of town. Takes him deep into the woods, into a secluded cabin in the Illinois shore, and locks him inside all day while he rambles outside. <laughs> By your own stupid logic, you have actually, indeed, proven my point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the him showing the Constitution to the agent or whatever does mean that he probably is a bit of a By Your Logic guy, so, I mean... <laughs> no, definitely. He, <laughs> yeah. You know history uh the dialectic means that we sometimes hit the same point on history of history at a different time and uh clearly we're back in andrew jackson's time (laughs) (laughs) so so at 14 years old andrew jackson and his brother served in the american war for independence where both of them were captured in 1781 by british forces while in captivity a british officer demanded jackson clean his boots When Jackson refused, the officer slashed him with a sword, leaving permanent scars on his face and head, the first of many battle scars he'd accumulate. You want to know how I got these scars? (laughs) Unsurprisingly, being held in captivity by the people you're at war with was not fun. Jackson and his brother contracted smallpox and nearly starved to death while being held by the British Army. After their mother Elizabeth secured their release later that year, the starved, smallpox-ridden Jackson brothers walked 40 miles back home with their mom. 
both. Jackson's mom and brother die from health complications resulting from the war. This marks the beginning of Andrew Jackson's (laughs) origin story. (laughs) Jackson moved down to the Western District of North Carolina, what is now known as Tennessee. He had grown wealthy as a lawyer, merchant, horse breeder, and planter. Once Tennessee became an official state in 1796, he became one of their first reps for the U.S. Congress, and later served as a U.S. Senator and then judge on the Tennessee Supreme Court. Damn, a true hustler. (laughs) Yeah, Jackson was uh, on his grind. During that point, what did I do? Is I did what I preached to all of you, which is I put in the work. I punted every leisure activity in my life. Nothing, no weekends, no vacations, zero, nothing, nothing. All my high school friends, gone because I wasn't around. All my college friends, post-college, gone. I'd see them a little bit. I love those guys, but gone. Girlfriends, nothing, all in. So what did I do? I worked. I worked to such an extreme level that when I push you on work, I don't even ask you to do 50% of what I did. (laughs) He charged huge attorney fees for processing claims of land stolen from Native Americans. Jackson also profited enormously from slavery and slave trading, slowly leveraging his capital to eventually purchase 1,000 acres of cotton fields and 150 human slaves to work his plantation. Though we had a lot of U.S. presidents who owned slaves— Jackson was the only president, as far as we know, to have personally driven slave coffles. Coffles are a procession of enslaved people, often roped by the neck, marched from one place to another. Importantly, because Jackson was in Tennessee and Kentucky, he also had a vested interest in Indian dispossession. Because the more settlers that went to Tennessee and Kentucky, the more business he'd get as a lawyer processing fees for others, and the more land he could speculate and acquire for his own slave plantation. New frontier lands required dispossession of Native Americans. So in nearly every way, basically, Andrew Jackson had a heavy financial stake in slavery and the murdering of Native Americans? Yes. It was as if the Joker was a rising grind guy with a WeWork All Access membership. <laughs> Just working down at the WeWork offices with old, uh, old Hickory. Yeah. <laughs> but being a business success grind set influencer who makes real estate TikToks about passive income being the key to freedom wasn't enough for Jackson. In 1802, he also got elected as the general of the Tennessee militia. Though despised by the Virginia founders and Northeast elites, partly because of his crass attitude and outsider standing, the founders' coalition were also deeply dependent on Jackson's military chops to advance the U.S.'s colonial project. As Grandin notes in End of the Myth, Madison wanted the British out of the Mississippi Valley, for which he started the War of 1812. General Jackson won it. James Monroe won a Spanish Florida. Jackson gave it to him. His murderous 1818 raid into Pensacola convinced Spain to cede the territory to Washington. So speaking of rising grind guys, uh, listeners, do you maybe remember Frederick Stump from episode two? The guy who murdered scores of Native Americans and got his wife and kids killed by going out past the frontier boundary 
only to be captured by the British and then released by a vigilante mob before fleeing to Tennessee to become a land speculator. He served as a military commander under General Andrew Jackson. (laughs) You just can't make this shit up. (laughs) He is a collection of tropes. (laughs) Tennessee was their sober rave and Frontierland their startup. (laughs) With Jackson being such a thin-skinned man, it's no surprise that he quickly made a name for himself in the dueling circuit. He was alleged to participate in as many as 100 duels. Dueling was supposed to be a gentleman's game with implied rules and norms, but Jackson respected neither. To give himself an upper edge, Jackson, a lanky, skinny man to begin with, would show up drenched in oversized trench coats to further obfuscate his torso, as if he were rocking Rick Owens and Soho winners. (laughs) (laughs) He would also stand at an angle rather than square, giving his dueling opponent a slimmer target to shoot at. And, you know, what's most striking to me is seemingly no one thought of this before, you know? Like, <laughs> like everyone yeah. just, like, wanted to square up on people like that. Yeah, I guess, you know, from our perspective today, it's um, it's a little weird to consider, but particularly in the South, uh, lining up and shooting your best friend or whatever uh, was considered a real gentleman's sport. <laughs> and uh and of course because they saw themselves as these little aristocrats they all thought there were rules to this andrew jackson was the first person that was like but what if i wanted to survive the duel then what would i do (laughs) and to be fair this was like he basically invented the nuclear bomb and dueling right right (laughs) (laughs) andrew jackson's like the person that runs that like cheap play in madden like the play action like or triple option you know (laughs) or like you just like can like never defend against it and he just keeps (laughs) on doing it like yeah it'll win piss everyone off but he does win the game (laughs) (laughs) well you know i mean I like that nobody else thought to just like go one step further and just cheat more, you know, like uh, (laughs) (laughs) maybe when walking backwards, just shoot them while his back's turned to you, the smart way to (laughs) duel. Or just the second you grab your gun out of the box, just shoot them. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) When you're like two feet away and you're definitely going to hit them. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's, it's very funny. And like to give people an idea of how, like what an epidemic dueling was at the time. I think it was in the 1820s. Uh, the U.S. Congress, which of course like rules over Washington D.C. as like an is a city as well, basically had to ban dueling within the city limits uh, because there was so much dueling between Congress members. <laughs> then- members of Congress just shooting <laughs> each other. Yeah, this gives the idea of the intelligence level of your average 19th century politician. Uh, but yeah, they quickly just found a hill outside of the city, and that became just the the, the unofficial official dueling location. <laughs> but yeah, they Incredible. felt they had to act because there was so much dueling happening. <laughs> so infamously in 1806, just two years after disgraced Vice President Aaron Burr murdered Alexander Hamilton in a duel, Andrew Jackson dueled Charles Dickinson. No, not that Charles Dickinson. (laughs) Over a horse racing feud. In the case of pistol duels, each party gets to fire one shot. Jackson let Dickinson shoot first with hopes that he would miss. So Jackson would get a clean shot at him. 
Instead, Jackson got shot in the chest. (laughs) (laughs) While in obvious pain from getting clapped by the burner, Jackson stayed standing and still took his turn. Jackson's first shot misfired, which should have meant the duel was over. Like, he took his shot and he missed. (laughs) But in a breach of dueling etiquette, Jackson re-cocked his gun and shot again, this time murdering Dickinson. (laughs) It truly was the best of times and then the worst of times. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm totally fine. I'm thinking Dickens. Oh, my God. Leave it in. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Leave it in. Leave it in. Stays in the picture. That's incredible. <laughs> you can just imagine just like. <laughs> Andrew Jackson shot Charles Dickens. It's like, like fuck that book. <laughs> the bullet would be lodged into Jackson's chest for the remainder of his life. Predictably, this murder sparked outrage in the local community. Forging his reputation as a violent, vengeful man, temporarily moving him to the fringes. Ironically, this reputation not only didn't stop him from ascending all the way to win the presidency, it might have even helped him get there. That same year in 1806, Jackson involved his Tennessee militia in fellow duelist and disgraced former VP Aaron Burr's plan to seize Spanish Florida. The plan blew up when Jackson got word that Burr was also plotting to seize New Orleans from the United States and keep both seized territories for himself to form a new uh, Aaron Burr Republic. (laughs) Can't make this shit up. (laughs) Jackson, outraged at Burr's audacity and treacherousness, distanced himself from Burr's plan and did public damage control, playing down his involvement and uh, commitment to the creation of the of the ABR. (laughs) Yeah. Jackson was an unorthodox officer. The military was still transitioning from an English feudal system, so officers were expected to be polite, fancy lads. Jackson, with his nouveau riche money and jokerified worldview, was ruthless and would do anything to get ahead. In the 19th century, military competence was in short supply. Just see Robert E. Lee staring at a fortified hill with entrenched troops and saying, hmm, line all our soldiers up in a line and slowly (laughs) walk towards it. Let's see what happens. Genius. (laughs) But Jackson was sophisticated and strategic. He was sort of like uh, the mountain and the hound in Game of Thrones. All right. He's the murderer you need if you actually want to win a war. But you don't really want to invite him over to dinner or anything. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to like, you know, the parents don't want to meet him. You know, you yeah. know, that's not the type of person you take home to your mom. Yeah, he was not a West Point gentleman, <laughs> to be sure. <laughs> Jackson ruthlessly lusted for westward expansion, and that expansion required violently murdering and displacing existing native communities. Grandin writes of Jackson in October of 1812. Tennessee state legislature ordered the creation of a, quote, sufficient force to exterminate the Creek Nation. Jackson, in charge of the West Tennessee militia, complied. The white settlers around Nashville had been in a low-intensity war with the Creeks for years. Leaders like Jackson had complained continually of federal inaction, of temporizing when it came to punishing the Creeks for raids on white communities. 
Jackson instructed his men, including Stomp and his sons, to, quote, pant with vengeance and turn themselves into engines of destruction. Jackson laid waste to Creek villages and declared himself justifiable. He threatened to continue burning houses, killing warriors, mutilating their bodies. He had ordered his men to cut the noses off of the Indian corpses so as to more easily tally the dead. And enslaving their wives and children, quote, until I do obtain a surrender. Scholars sometimes describe the madman theory as a modern kind of diplomacy, the tactical use of the threat of irrational violence to leverage negotiations. But Jackson in the 1810s warned one indigenous group after another that they would be hunted to extinction if they didn't agree to terms. Quote, Fire shall consume their towns and villages, he told Native Americans considering supporting the Creeks, and their land shall be divided among the whites. Jackson kept the skulls of Indians he killed as trophies, and his soldiers cut long strips of skin from their victims to use as bridle reins. Terrorize, bribe, legalize. Jackson used that sequence, threatened death, pay off those tribal leaders who could be paid off to break unified resistance, and then formalize the arrangement with a treaty to propel himself into the presidency. Andrew Jackson ran for president and won against John Quincy Adams, the incumbent who opposed slavery, opposed dispossession of Native Americans, opposed a war with Mexico, but still favored westward expansion. Adams' views were directly contradictory, as successful expansion west requires the very things he opposed. Adams had a different idea of how westward expansion, without those distasteful things like slavery and genocide, could work. Quote, The United States was destined by God and nature to be coexistive with the North American continent. Adams' presidency exposed the contradiction between the Enlightenment morality espoused in Boston salons around the inherent dignity and equality of man and the American political economic project that created those fortunes in the first place. In short, Adams wanted to continue expansion without having to feel like a hypocrite, without having to feel bad about it. Jackson presented a different option. Jackson ran what many historians consider the first modern campaign, where he actually went on a roadshow and talked to voters directly. Prior to this, candidates for president would campaign via formal letters, usually written by a third party on their behalf, that they sent to influential politicians and citizens as well as state electors. To attempt to directly appeal to voters, who the founders referred to as, quote, the great beast, and created the electoral college to tame, was seen as unseemly. Jackson's campaigning predictably angered America's revolutionary war aristocracy, who viewed democracy leveraged on that scale to be a threat to the republic. The Jacksonians had a simpler solution. As Grandin notes, Jackson aligned theory or desire with action. Remove Indians, wage war on Mexico, and defend and extend slavery. In short, Jackson was not going to hide in a Boston salon. He fully embraced the American project. Void of contradiction and full of conviction, 
the Jacksonians won. Historian Charles Sellers describes the victory. Jacksonians hailed the, quote, triumph of the great principle of self-government over the intrigues of aristocracy as ushering the democratic millennium. Jubilant multitudes turned out in homage along the hero's route to Washington and, quote, like the inundation of the northern barbarians into Rome, flooded the capital from 500 miles around for his inauguration. Quote, they really seem to think, marveled Daniel Webster, that the country is rescued from some dreadful danger. Huzzahs from 15,000 throats drowned out from the new president's inaugural promise of vaguely specified reform. Then the sovereign people thronged the White House in such a Saturnalia of mud and filth that tubs of punch had to be carried outside to save the furnishings from the destruction of the president from suffocation. To Justice Joseph's story, quote, the reign of King Mob seemed triumphant. Jackson's inauguration party was the Whigs' worst nightmare. His journey from Nashville to Washington took three weeks, and everywhere along the route, he was greeted by large crowds. At Pittsburgh, where he switched from steamboat to carriage, the crowd was so great that it took him nearly an hour to make his way from the dock to his hotel, a mere quarter mile away. The White House was woefully unprepared for the amount of people who showed up, ending in a near fire festival situation. They just couldn't physically fit that many people on the island. The event's co-founder is facing up to 20 years in prison. If you had thousands of dollars to go on a trip to see Blink-182, that's on you. That is Darwinism at its finest. (laughs) Okay, it wasn't like Firefest bad, but I mean, still. (laughs) (laughs) Jackson brought his predominantly white male horde into the White House for the inaugural reception. Approximately 21,000 people came to see his swearing in. Some might say they stormed the Capitol, but in a I'm happy with the election outcome type of way. (laughs) The large attendance is extra significant since this took place in 1829. Most were not even able to hear the inaugural address. (laughs) We forget (laughs) microphones weren't a thing yet. (laughs) (laughs) Right. They were just there for the love of the game and their big, lanky, jokerified boy, Andrew Jackson. Jackson got pressed with his back to a wall until his people were able to get him away from his oinking hogs, and then he was guided back to his hotel. The sheer number of people inside the White House led to collisions with furniture and food. From Grandin's end of the myth, A proletarian orgy was how one writer later recalled the scene at Jackson's inauguration. As the president's crude supporters, quote, descended upon the city like a great swarm of locusts by a stagecoach, cart, and wagon, on horseback and on foot. Wearing homespun dresses and rough canvas jackets, they made the White House their own for the day, leaving the rugs muddied and the porcelain shattered when the festivities were over. Jackson's presidency empowered and emboldened white American men like never before. His election came at a consequential and rapidly changing time in America. Cities were growing, European immigrants were arriving in large succession, while the Industrial Revolution loomed with the rise of manufacturing and finance capital. Grandin writes, 
As capitalism continued to develop and grow, more families than ever before depended on wages to survive. Paper currency flooded local markets as banks spread across the nation. Personal debt grew and rent increased. The Atlantic market for cotton boomed, with southern slave plantations growing to keep pace with demand. Amid these rapid social and economic changes, many of which were a direct result of capitalism, you would think a candidate could rally popular support in a more socialist or at least social democratic way, pointing out capitalism was turning people who used to be employers, unemployed or self-employed, into wage workers, otherwise known as employees. This is a phenomenon of capitalism Karl Marx later called proletarianization. He could point out that declining standards of living are a result of capitalist exploitation, but the frontier was always there to absorb class conflict with the promise of escape from exploitation. True freedom was always to be found just a little further to the West. As capitalism was driving the proletarianization of white workers, the wealthy Whig circles, as the well-heeled opponents of Jackson were called, were worried that the extension of democracy to the white male working class would backfire as the workers might turn out to be, quote, coonskin Jacobins. Quote, the hobgoblin of Caesarism haunted universal imagination, as one writer described the terror that pervaded Whig circles. Jackson is the last person who would be interested in a popular labor revolution, but growing resentment among voters still loomed. Jackson promised his supporters to take the country back in a direction of primitive simplicity. Take them back to the good old days. According to Jackson, it wasn't capitalism that was making their lives miserable and their standards of living decline. The root of the problem was actually the government. The government. From Grandin. The federal government, Jackson said, should be limited to a general superintending power, prohibited from restricting human liberty and used only to enforce human rights, chief among them free enterprise and property rights, including the right to own human beings as property. Washington's duties should be plain. Its machinery should be so simple and economical as scarcely to be felt. Jackson often used the image of a stripped-down machine, reduced to minimum operations, to describe what should be the proper, limited relationship of the federal government, quote, that simple machine which the Constitution created, to the individual states. This libertarian, hyper-Jeffersonian idea formed into what we can call a cult of Jacksonianism. The anti-government free enterprise ideas of Jacksonianism were used to forestall the obvious and growing demand of ending the institution of chattel slavery. Jacksonians got some demands like the extension of the vote and the end of debtor's prison, but Jacksonianism acted as a safety release valve on its own, violently harnessing white grievance outward onto black slaves and Native Americans rather than class war upwards perpetuating a racial hierarchy and horizontal class conflict between black chattel slaves and white wage laborers against each other was essential to maintaining the status quo. 
one that slaveholders like Jackson had a vested interest in maintaining. Jackson was the culmination of a new, insurgent American ruling class. Northern Whig elites did not want to observe or acknowledge the violence and misery required to produce their passive income streams. In contrast, Jacksonians comprised the foot soldiers of capital, militiamen, and entrepreneurial frontiersmen, all who had a more direct experience in enforcing oppression. Jacksonians had an unflinchingly realistic view of what was needed for the system of capitalism to work. Labor, on the other hand, sold on the pervasive idea that they could escape declining living standards with deceiving promises of obtaining free land in the West, saw their class position as only temporary. Wage workers believed they didn't need to care about their labor conditions in the present when they were promised to be rich in the future. These delusions caused by myth-making from the American ruling class stifled any solidarity between fellow workers. In short, America's working class was not class-conscious. Andrew Jackson figured out a way to synthesize Jefferson's vision of a simple yeoman farmer, the only truly free citizen, with capitalism's rapacious need for expansion and exploitation. Capital looked itself in the mirror, stared into its eyes, saw the belly of the beast for what it was, and decided it liked what it saw. No longer was there tacit shame in enforcement of racial and class hierarchy, or in the frontier violence on Native peoples to more efficiently extract surplus value. Only pride. There was no longer delusion or contradiction of the realities capital required to grow. Jacksonianism marks the moment capital became class conscious. Within Jackson's synthesis of the free yeoman farmer and capital's need for expansion, he created the frontiersman, a particular brand of American psychopath. It's important to remember that at the heart of the Jacksonian Revolution always laid Indian removal. The demand to remove Creek and Cherokee people from Georgia had dominated the presidency of John Quincy Adams. Plans for removal drafted by a deeply conflicted cabinet were voted down by a bitterly divided Congress. The removal of the Creek and Cherokee would require the abrogation of an 1802 treaty signed by the federal government. Some in Congress worried that such an act could be blocked by the courts. Others worried that it would make offering similar treaties to Native Americans again in the future impossible. In 1823, the Supreme Court handed down a critical ruling in the case of Johnson v. McIntosh. In his opinion, Chief Justice John Marshall ruled that indigenous people had an inalienable right to title for the land that they were on, meaning that private citizens cannot purchase or otherwise obtain Indian land for the purpose of evicting the inhabitants. It would have been a devastating decision for white settlers had it not been for the federal exception that he built into the ruling. Harsha Walia notes, quote, Chief Justice John Marshall wrote that, quote, the principle of discovery gave European nations an absolute right to New World lands. This principle of discovery gave Europeans the right to radical title over lands that they discovered, meaning that by settling in the land, Europeans had gained the legal title to that land. Those indigenous people that remained after discovery, having not apparently discovered the land themselves, would maintain a legacy title to the land that they are on granted by the settling authority. 
In short, the federal government maintained the sole right to negotiate and manage the title to Indian land. This decision was an open invitation to steamroll Native treaty rights. All it required was an executive with the will to do so. From historian Reginald Horseman, quote, The election of Andrew Jackson in 1828 sealed the fate of the Southern Indians. Since 1814, Jackson had been anxious to clear the Indians from the Southern states. As president, he made it known through Secretary of War John Eaton that he would no longer protect the Indians against the Southern states who wanted their lands. Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee had all given Jackson crushing popular majorities in the 1828 election. Once Jackson was elected, the southern states could extend their jurisdiction over the Indian lands within their borders. Neither John Marshall at the Supreme Court nor the missionaries among the Indians could save them. In 1830, the Jackson administration was able to squeeze the Indian Removal Act through Congress, authorizing the removal of Indians from the southern states to the areas east of the Mississippi River. In the 1832 case of the Cherokee Nation v. Georgia, Chief Justice Marshall gave the last of a series of rulings dating back to Johnson v. McIntosh that sought to craft a post-facto legal justification for American expansion into the Indian land. In this case, Marshall ruled that the Cherokee Nation was, in fact, a sovereign entity and could not be legally bound by the state of Georgia. Even this paper-thin defense of tribal rights could not be tolerated by Jackson, who responded, quote, Justice Marshall has rendered his opinion. Now let him enforce it. Jackson and every subsequent president simply ignored the ruling. shit you can do that with the supreme court just tell them to eat shit you could just say fuck off interesting interesting wow. interesting how you can always do that in the service of some interests but never in others yeah weird huh hmm. weird. during his second annual message to the nation in december of 1830 jackson stated quote what good man would prefer a country covered with forests and ranged by a few thousand savages to our extensive republic studded with cities, towns, and prosperous farms, embellished with all the improvements which art can devise or industry execute, occupied by more than 12 million happy people, and filled with all the blessings of liberty, civilization, and religion. Congressman Richard Wilde of Georgia was more to the point. What is history but the obituary of nations? Should the United States check the course of human happiness, obstruct the march of science, stay the works of art, and stop the arm of industry because they will efface in their progress the wigwam of the Red Hunter and put out forever the council fire of his tribe? In all, 60,000 people were moved west of the Mississippi under the auspices of the Indian Removal Act and what became known as the Trail of Tears. One in five would die on the journey. It was, in short, an act of genocide. Now, 
one, nice to see that uh, politicians have always believed in science. Yeah, you know, I mean, finally, someone's like listening to the scientists. Yeah. But we do sort of begin to see the creation of not just the concept of race, which we've talked about in previous episodes, but a racial narrative, right, of a conquering, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, white race taking over the land. Now, this time, slightly more complicated because white meant like two regions of England. Yeah, right. But, but, you know. Yeah, there wasn't the BIPOCs yet, the um, (laughs) the Italian uh, people of color, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Italians did not quite yet join the white race. But but it is this interesting development. And I think that one of the things that we want to sort of talk about here is that Jackson is this sort of complicated figure. On one hand, in, you know, sort of uh, the social media climate, you might want to say he's based and that it's funny (laughs) that he uh, decided to stand sideways in duels to shoot other rich people. (laughs) On one hand, funny. Valid, yeah. (laughs) On the other hand, he is a soulless fucking monster who pushed American expansion west in the most disgusting ways possible. But I think that his legacy is even more complicated than that. Now, with the election of Trump, obviously, there was a lot of discussion of Andrew Jackson, a lot of editorial space wasted on Andrew Jackson. There was the idea of he represented the dangers of populism, a cautionary tale of, you know, this is what happens when the rabble rules. I think that's literally not actually what happened. Yeah, I, think that's I agree. What, yeah, and what we tried to cover above, Andrew Jackson, for all his horrifying reality, is just a man. Yeah. What he represents is the forward march of American capitalism. Everything he did was at the request of American capital. Everything he did was in service of American capitalism. There were larger forces at play demanding westward expansion. Those forces were going to demand the eradication of Indians based off the things we've talked about before, like fear that Indians would cause slave revolts and things like that. The fact that Jackson was able to you know, launch a popular campaign is more a result of what you had discussed earlier, Munya, very eloquently, which is the capitalist class had become conscious in that moment, had seen the, you know, ball and decided to grip it. Whereas the working class was not conscious and could be yeah, easily the working divided. class had a carrot dangling over a stick and they were running towards it the whole time. Exactly. You know, they could be divided with treats. Yeah. And I think a lot of the stuff about Andrew Jackson and populism really roots itself in the Whig fear going all the way back to the founding of the country of the rabble, right? A fear of the working class, a fear of, you know, not having elites in control at all times. Uh, This explains the continued obsession with this first inauguration in the party. Um, I have a Texas high school history textbook for early (laughs) colonial period through reconstruction i'm sure it's very very normal stuff in there very illuminating material and the funny thing is is there's mainly just nothing in there it's just blank space and pictures 
Um, oh, my type of book. Yeah, and basically, Andrew <laughs> Jackson, you know, Andrew Jackson's presidency, I hope that we've gotten across in this episode, is very important, right, in the history of America. It's a very important period in the history of America. It has one page in this history textbook. And that one page dedicates a significant amount of room uh, of the 15 sentences, essentially, they dedicate to Andrew Jackson's presidency. At least six of them are about this inauguration. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous, right? And, I, and again, I think it represents this sort of fear of uh, the rabble, right? Fear of the masses that's inherent in a system of capitalism where elites do rule and see their rule as legitimate. Yeah, no, I, I do completely agree with that, Brian. And I also really think that the creation of racialized capitalism like created the conditions like Jackson and Jacksonianism to even happen in the first place. And both of those two things have to be present and taught and learned by everyone involved who are subjects in order for Jackson to rise and Jacksonianism to happen. If proletarianization wasn't a thing, then uh, like under capitalism, then the animosity wouldn't have been as high and there wouldn't be, you know, Jackson as a quote unquote, like populist maybe wouldn't have been able to thrive. And it reminds me of like what Franz Fanon said about how oppressors can create an elite amongst the oppressed to become their surrogate oppressors. This happens in colonialism, whether it's the colonization of America, it happens in more like a 20th century colonialism, especially with uh, racial oppression, um, creating an elite amongst the oppressed to become their surrogate oppressors. And he touched on this in The Wretched of the Earth. And I do think that when you hear the narrative of, oh, it was just populism, this is the dangers of it, it really just sounds like you just want an aristocracy, right? Because mm. there are, like you said, Brian, way larger forces at play than just one guy just rambling out the rubes to come out. You got to have the more material analysis is what conditions were laid for something like this to actually happen because it doesn't come out of nowhere and it comes from more deep roots and these are systems that create from the cycles and crises of capitalism that occur because capitalism is a cyclical economic system that has booms and it has busts right and those busts then uh, open the door to more reactionary um, ideas and ultimately crisis capitalism uh, benefits the ruling class so essentially, we are seeing right now in a change and in a sort of crisis of capitalism, a new ruling class rising up while the working class getting pitted against each other because of genuine grievances, right? Mm. Um, but now you have like racism, which is taught. It's not an inherent thing. They had to teach this to people that they are, these white people, they're special. They are superior to these Africans. They are superior to these Native Americans. And, oh, you are actually closer to us, the ruling class, than you are to your fellow workers, right? Mm -hmm. That is something that is a really powerful concept that can really discipline and divide a working class. And surely that might have a little bit of consequence going forward in this American yeah. projects too. Exactly. And, you know, this, you know, white men at this time are given special permissions. They can go out and massacre Indians, right? You know, these kind of things. 
and those special permissions are you know those special permissions are sold to them as an escape from the drudgery of their daily life in cities on the eastern seaboard right like your boss sucks you hate working you know you hate doing you hate wage labor this new form of labor that just came into existence you know in that century <laughs> new oppressive system just dropped just dropped you hate it uh well here's an escape but on your way out there i'm afraid there's some things we're gonna need you to do for us you know and that's gonna be <laughs> yeah. bludgeoned a bunch of people to death now I think the key here and not getting lost, you know, I'm, I'm Khrushchev and I'm banging my shoe on the table. Yeah. Yelling <laughs> base and superstructure, base and superstructure. Remember yeah. which yeah. is which <laughs> Jackson <laughs> is in the superstructure. The base is the economic needs to not push West would have required giving up on slavery. The most, the literal engine of the American economy. It would basically be the same, like, you know what? Let's just not do capitalism anymore. Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> yeah, which if you think that the capitalist class thought that was an option in 1830, I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> and this gets back to, you know, this point that you were talking about and bringing up Fanon and stuff is the role of ideology, right? So there's an economic need that needs to be filled and ideology is going to step in to explain to you why it's in your best interest to fulfill that economic need. Now, that story is going to be different depending on the audience it goes to. And Jacksonianism creates a sort of, you know, base version of what will be the modern American ideology. This idea, particularly amongst conservatives, of government is actually inherently bad. You know, its only job is to protect property rights, right? It has no function as far as they're concerned when it comes to making regular people's lives better mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that is not only not its job that is directly antithetical and bad for it to do so right because that would violate property rights which is its actual job <laughs> yeah right and that's what people say even today when you know i when we go through this and we you know reach kind of modern day we could uh from last summer you might recall in the summer of 2020 with the uprisings from george floyd um, conservative hand-wringing over property destruction. Or maybe when you heard chants of you protect property, we protect people directed to the police. That is a direct critique of the state actually being designed in this capitalist system to protect private property rather than look after people. Police are one aspect of that, but it is a sense of the larger role of the government, which is an ideology that Jacksonianism really crystallized and cemented into the American ethos. Yeah, a permanent brain rot that is going to be there forever. And it does express, I mean, for all the editorial space wasted on talking about Jacksonianism and how it compares to you know Trumpism, whatever you want to describe <laughs> that as, there are similarities in the way that there are similarities between this and every American president, but there are similarities in that, uh, you know, Trump also is a product of American capitalism through and through. He also has, you know, the, the stuff about the white working class supporting Trump is more overblown than real, but it is true that there were white workers who thought that like Trump was going to help them in some way they are as deluded as the white workers who thought Jackson was going to help them are in that it's from the same 
tree. It's a complete lack of class consciousness and a belief that, oh, maybe this time this guy is going to give me an escape. And as false as that promise was under Trump, it was that false under Jackson as well. Indeed. Well, let's go ahead and close out with a quote from Grandin where he sort of sums up the age of Jackson. The age of Jackson, or what some scholars have called the Jacksonian consensus, entailed a radical empowerment of white men. At the same time, though, it witnessed an equally radical subjugation of African Americans. Quote, the adoption of universal white male suffrage, wrote the historian Lerone Bennett Jr. in 1970, led directly to the disenfranchisement of black males who had voted since the colonial period. As chattel cotton slavery spread into the Deep South, into Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas, free people of color, that is, former slaves or descendants of slaves, who had gained their emancipation through manumission, escape, or, in northern states, abolition, saw their rights greatly curtailed, with new second-class citizenship laws passed in many states. Quote, As Jacksonian democracy reached new heights, Bennett continued, Racism in America reached levels never before known to man. Poor whites rose, and black poors were pushed down. But poor whites could only rise so far in cramped cities and squalid quarters, earning low wages and paying high rent. Many, looking around their miserable conditions, began to organize workingmen's and mechanics associations and to ask the same question Jackson asked of his encounter on the trace. Are we free men? Or are we slaves? So as workers on the eastern seaboard seemed crushed between the rock of class warfare and wage slavery, the American capitalist class looked towards the sky and said, But what if there was another way? We'll learn about that other way next week as we go over chapter four and discuss the safety valve. The money's not the deal, the cow's not the deal, it's freedom and liberty and access to a land. Get rid of this abusive uh, government. It's free real estate.
desde el otro lado de la frontera dicen que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de space.